Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, May 24th. Advanced polls are now open and the countdown is on to Election Day in Alberta, now less than one week away. We catch up with Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken for the latest on the campaign trail. As the war in Ukraine stretches into its 16th month, we get an update on the conflict from Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in European affairs. And finally, the cancellation of the Canada Day fireworks display in the city has caused well, fireworks. We discuss the issue from an Indigenous perspective with Paul Custer, Calgary writer, comedian, former broadcaster, and Indigenous advocate. In advance, polls for Alberta's 31st general election are now open and will be daily through Saturday. Elections Alberta reporting 161,830 people cast ballots on day one yesterday. That's up 20,000 from the 2019 provincial election. Well, Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, is joining us once again this morning for a look at where the leaders are on the campaign trail and how things are going. Good morning to you, David. Thanks for being with us again. Yeah, no problem. And those are great numbers. Listen, I cover elections all across the country. 160,000 people on advanced voting. In 2019, almost 37% of all the votes cast were in advanced polls. They're so important. And Elections Alberta has this great thing where you can you can vote anywhere and have the vote counted back in your riding. So, you know, let's say you're out in Banff today, but you live, say, in, you know, the northeast of Calgary. No problem. Find a polling booth in Banff and it'll count back in you're riding. It's a really good innovation, and it's it gets a lot more voter participation. So that's just a really strong number to hear. What was it? One hundred sixty thousand yesterday cast a ballot. That's just great, mm-hmm. incredible. Hey, listen, we were talking about it being battleground Calgary when it comes to this provincial election, David. But uh, we haven't spoke with you since last week, so let's go back to the weekend in Edmonton, and it was the capital that got a surprising amount of attention over the holiday weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, it did. And uh, I'm going to start with Daniel Smith, the UCP leader. Um, We know Edmonton, of course, uh, all of Edmonton, except for one riding, voted NDP. But there was Daniel Smith up there. She says uh, she did 15, one five, 15 campaign events over two and a half days there. One thing with the UCP campaign, they don't tell us. They don't tell the media where they're going. There's no media advisory uh, about some of these campaign stops. You have to look at her social feed after the fact to figure out where she's going. There is a media advisor for today. Smith is going to be in Calgary today in the riding of Calgary Buffalo for an event. But on the weekend, we just sort of had to follow along our social feeds. And I want to talk about a couple of ridings there. So the UCP wants more Edmonton representation. It would like to have more uh, MLAs from the nat- provincial capital. So she was up in a riding of Edmonton Castle Downs. Um, she was in a bunch of ridings, but one was Edmonton Castle Downs. This is in the north part of the city. This is a riding uh, that used to be held by the progressive conservative Thomas Lukasik. And, uh, you know, Lukasik, uh, you know, he likes to still mix it up. He's out there on social feeds. Lukasik right now, again, this is a former progressive conservative cabinet minister. He is endorsing the NDP. And you probably heard there's been a couple of, you know, notable conservatives, if you will, saying I'm voting for Rachel Notley. Lee Richardson, the former Calgary conservative MP, is one of those. Doug Griffith, another PCer from uh, sort of the Jim Prentice, Allison Redford days, is saying vote NDP. On the other side of the ledger, I noticed that uh, Ronna Ambrose, the former uh, conservative MP and former uh, deputy leader of the conservative party here in Ottawa, um, she's endorsing Smith. In any event... There was there was Danielle Smith up in Tom Lukasik's old riding trying to steal that mm. from the NDP. Interesting. Meanwhile, the NDP leader, Rachel Notley, and Danielle Smith 
both found themselves in a riding south of Edmonton. It's a riding called Leduc Beaumont. This is this is one of the fastest growing parts of the province. I mean, it's suburb after suburb, booming population, young families, and that demographic is going to change some the political flavor of it. So Leduc Beaumont, you're going to want to watch that on election night. We've got the big screen. We'll be going through all the ridings. Both leaders were there on the weekend. The NDP are running a guy who's a paramedic. A guy named Cam Heenan is running down in that particular riding. And the UCP, are, there's, no, there's no incumbent here. They are running a candidate who uh, right now works for the Alberta government. His name's Brandon Lunty. Uh, his third kick at the can to get an office. He ran and lost for the Wild Rose and tried to get a, a candidacy somewhere else. But Leduc Beaumont, um, I think, is uh, one of the Edmonton battleground ridings. So there, as it turns out, yes, there's going to be, we're going to pay a little bit of attention up north to the, uh, to the Capitol on election night. A little bit, but not a lot. We know the campaigns will be turning their full attention to Calgary now in this home stretch. We're just five days away. And you've got a couple of ridings that you wanted to zoom in on in the southern part of the province. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Edmonton, there's going to be a little action up at Denver, but you're absolutely right. Calgary is going to be the star of the show. Well done, Calgary. Uh, that's because not people in Calgary, a lot of riders in Calgary, people are leaning one way, leaning the other way. I want to zero in on one ride today. That's Calgary Elbow. So Calgary Elbow is, you know, it's kind of a downtown to the uh, west riding. It's shaped like an elbow if you take a look at it. That's why it's called Calgary Elbow. Um, listen, at last in 2019, I'm just pulling that up in front of me. 2019, Doug Schweitzer run this, ran this riding. Schweitzer very closely associated with uh, Jason Kenney. Got 44% of the vote. But you know who finished second? Wasn't the NDP. It was Greg Clark. Remember Greg Clark? He was leading the Alberta party at the time got 30% of the vote there's a couple of ridings throughout the province where the Alberta party last time around got 10 15 in this case 30% of the vote what happens to those voters polls show Alberta former Alberta party supporters would tend to go NDP Rachel Notley's got to have them all going NDP she needs that support certainly she doesn't need Al former Alberta party types either sitting on their hands or voting for the Alberta party that'd be terrible but Calgary Elbow is one to watch another reason for because of the strong Alberta party presence is this time around you know one guy that's been making news not you know making news not necessarily in a great way Archer Pulaski remember the that Calgary pastor right we all know his story he's running in Calgary Elbow he's got his own little party and he's running in Calgary Elbow he's unlikely to win that seat but is he going to start sapping support that might have gone to the UCP candidate, Chris Davis? We're going to have to see. I think Calgary Elbow is definitely one that the NDP think is more likely to go to them because of the presence of Pulaski, who's going to sap support. And just quickly, the other one, I, I think every, every election we sort of look at this, and that's Banff Kananaskis, um, and just sort of to the, obviously to the west of the city. The, the voters there, if you, you can pinpoint the neighborhood polls, Banff Kananaskis comes right to sort of Calgary's doorstep on the west side, northwest side, or sort of me, southwest side. And those voters right there, they're conservative voters. And then as you get to Banff and Camor, very heavy NDP, green, liberal voters. So the battle here is, it, right now it's held by uh, the UCP. So the battle right, right now is among those conservative voters right on Calgary's doorstep in Banff Kananaskis. Uh, that's where the, the heavy door-to-door -door canvassing is happening, both campaigns, UCP saying stick with us, NDP saying no, it's time to roll over and join your cousins in Banff, Banff and Canmore who are voting uh, NDP. So those are a couple of ridings uh, sort of in the southern Alberta, Calgary area, Calgary Elbow, Banff, Kananaskis, 
keep an eye on those two uh, as we get to uh, election night. Uh, we've got just 30 seconds left, uh, David, but uh, can we expect any grand gestures from either party in the next five days? Or are they just going to stay the course and keep up with the same pace and maybe the same tactics that they've been doing through the campaign? No, I, I think the case has been made, and this is because we 160,000 decisions have already been made. That's yesterday. Today, there's going to be another 150, 140,000 votes cast. Both campaigns know that the time for making that grand gesture, that big announcement, is passed. Every campaign now, and I, I know the managers on both sides, they both they used to work here in Ottawa, they know how important ground game is, and ground game is getting out your vote right now. The polls are open right now. So it's past time for leaders to do grand gestures. The leaders' tours, the, the, way, the reason they're going around to these ridings is to get volunteers all pumped up. So volunteers are working with extra enthusiasm to drive a voter to the polls, to make that final pitch to convince someone to uh, vote one way or the other. So this is this is essentially, it's election day, but election day runs for five days. Mm -hmm. And so these campaigns are treating it like that. They are pulling people out to vote. And so, uh, so it is air wars done. It's all ground game until uh, polls close on uh, next Monday night. Advanced polling continues through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Thank you so much for your time, David. Appreciate it. Yeah, can't wait to be uh, find Alberta tomorrow, and I, I hear that the air is clearing up. I'm going to look forward to breathing that beautiful Alberta air. Oh, good. Fantastic. Maybe we can see you in person while you're here and get another report. Thanks for your time. Okay, thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent. The G7 Leaders Summit has wrapped, and the U.S. has shifted its stance on providing F-16 fighters to help in Ukraine. Joining us to discuss this and the latest developments in Ukraine, we're joined by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European Affairs. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning to you both. Well, let's break this down. We're, we've had uh, you know many checkpoints uh, with you over the past 15 months. 15 months today, by the way. Uh, the mm. uh, conflict is old, 15 months for, starting on February 24th. Who would you say, or can we say, one of the two have an upper hand at this point? No, at this point, I would still uh, say it's a stalemate. Uh, we're now waiting for the, um, the Ukrainian offensive. Uh, we did see uh, in the last uh, two days this, um, this sort of uh, incursion, if you will, by irregular troops, uh, Russian citizens who are fighting for Ukraine in their own little two units. Uh, they did a cross-border raid uh, in Belgorod, uh, shook up the Russians. Uh, I see that as part of Ukrainian preparatory operations for their offensive. They're trying to uh, unnerve the Russians and get the Russians to move their forces, spread them out thinner along the borders, because most people expect that the main emphasis of the, Rush, of the Ukrainian offensive will be in the south uh, to threaten Crimea and so on. So, no, I think we're in that stalemate. Bakhmut is a stalemate. No, everything is stalemate. Interesting that, you know, the Ukrainian people, for the most part, and fighters have, have managed to hold off what Putin would like to think was such a powerful army coming out of Russia. But uh, it's fa it's fascinating to see how they've managed to hold things off. Now, in the U.S., support for their government's financial help to Ukraine has dwindled. How vital, though, is financial support from the United States government and, frankly, from other countries as well? Absolutely critical. Uh, and in the, it's the American one, really. The American amount of aid that the United States gives dwarfs everybody else. So really, uh, it's very simple. Without American assistance, economic, military, Ukrainians would not be able to conduct this war. I think that's a very clear statement, and that's the, re the way it is. If the 
uh, American uh, assistance becomes threatened over time, and you're correct. Uh, polling suggests that it's slipping uh, in the U.S., and, of course, as we know, there is a faction, not all Republicans, but a section of the Republicans, that is advocating a restraint on support for Ukraine, not canceling it, but restraining it, which would mean that the Ukrainians would be more and more in a position of inability to launch offensives. They would still be able to defend, and but they wouldn't be able to attack so much. And I think this is where we're going in the fall, and my suspicion on the airplanes and the F-16 approvals by the United States to let the countries send F-16s and pilot training and so on, is a position in Ukraine for the longer term, uh, the fall and thereafter, where Ukraine will have to be able to defend and one day negotiate from a position of strength. But those conditions are not assured. Well, let's break this down, Andrew, because there was uh, the U.S. coming out saying they were not interested in sending F-16s to Ukraine. Now they've, you know, turned that around. Uh, what was the, the difference and what was the change in their stance? So the, the Americans uh, made a major shift in their in their position before they were opposed to any F-16s going. And we have to remember that under international protocols, it's the, the country of manufacture of a major weapon system. They control the export licenses. So the United States, as the manufacturer of all F-16s, where depending, doesn't matter where they are in the world, they control the exportation of these airplanes. And they were resisting that. Now, uh, in the lead-up to the G7 summit, the Americans made a major shift by allowing uh, those countries who have F-16s, should they wish to donate them to Ukraine, they, they could. The United States would not block it. That The United States said it's not sending its own F-16s, but the United States will train Ukrainian pilots on American F-16s in the United States. Um, so that, why did they do this? Well, Jake Sullivan, American uh, Secretary of the, the, the Chairman of, of the Security Council, he said very clearly the Americans are now looking to the next phase of the war, because mu much of the equipment that's been promised is either there or coming there. There's not much more to go from the West in terms of to Ukraine. So they're looking beyond this offensive into the fall, into 2024, and they, they see the fighter aircraft situation as being the last, you can say, missing component to give the Ukrainian armed forces a strong, as strong a position as the West is able to do. It's kind of the last best thing the West can do. Yeah, potentially a game changer, right? So how, how has Russia responded to this fighter jet announcement then, Andrew? So, yeah, I, and, I, and I, when I hear game changer, I, I'm one of those who say there's no particular weapon system that in itself is a game changer. I call them game enhancers. They, they, they plus up, they improve, but the war, that, that doesn't mean Ukraine will win or anything like that. Now, the Russians, the Russians are saying, okay, you know, this will cause more devastation. Uh, they are going to, uh, they, they, they study these airplanes, they study their weak spots, and they are going to be con uh, uh, coming up with their counter moves. And every system has a weakness, and the idea is to find out where that weakness is and, 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 and use your systems, because the Russians also have reasonably sophisticated systems. So, uh, so the game's in play on that one. Something that I've, I've not heard about until this war, but apparently it's been around for quite some time, the Wagner Group. Can you tell us about yeah. exactly, I'm not sure if we say Wagner or Wagner. Um, yeah, Wagner. Well, it's, it's, it's after, after yeah. the German Wagner, so we make it the, the W of V. The Wagner, uh, the Wagner Group. Uh, is a, is a is a uh, mercenary group uh, that uh, has been around for a number of years, uh, led by a guy named Prokosian, or financed by him, uh, and they have been operating predominantly uh, in Africa uh, on behalf of Russian interests. Uh, 
So, and in Syria. And so basically uh, they are like a, a, an armed group, like a, a mercenary groups, and they go and fight uh, against the people that Russians want them to fight against. And so they've been quite influential in securing allied positions for the Russians in certain parts of Africa, uh, particularly mineral-rich areas, where they basically supported uh, ruling elites in certain African countries to defend their interests, but then they, in turn, uh, acquiesce to Russian interests. Yeah, that's how it works. So that's what they've been doing for numbers of years, and quite successfully. But now they got involved in the war in Ukraine because that wasn't going very well for the Russians. They needed a plus-up. And so Wagner Prigozhin decided, obviously in consultation with Putin, uh, that he would contribute uh, his forces. And in, he went in big, uh, rather than just small, you know, the way they operate in Africa. He's operating at a fairly substantive uh, group of force there. And, and, of course, and then he got Putin's permission to recruit additional uh, people from the prisons. So he's got con- he has convicts fighting for him as well. And, and so, so that's what he's done. He's, and through that, he's really plussed himself up as a player within the Russian elites. So he's a, he's a player now, politically speaking, in Russia. That's fascinating. One quick question we wanted to get to you before we let you go is that there are reports out of Ukraine that indicate Russian soldiers might be under the influence of amphetamines or other narcotics. This is something that the Nazis did uh, back in the war. Is this common practice? And, and what effect do you think it might be having on this war effort? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, uh, yes, the Germans, are. they have these tablets they used to give out to soldiers. That's sort of a very interesting history there. Um, well, the, the Russian soldiers uh, could be under influence of uh, vodka uh, or drugs, uh, and, and that's not new either. Uh, World War II, uh, the Soviet Army uh, ran on vodka in some ways. So, yes, this is no doubt there. Uh, it's, it's common to many armies, uh, unfortunately, in the field. The United States Army in Vietnam, particularly in the later days, the early 70s, it was half spaced out on various types of drugs and booze. So, yeah, it does happen to militaries. Uh, does that, is that going to make the Russian army collapse and withdraw? Unlikely. I wouldn't take that too far, except to say yes. Uh, there is certainly evidence uh, of, of the Ukraine of the Russians being under influence of various sort of um, you know alcohol and narcotics and so on. That that but that happens. Andrew, thanks for the update this morning. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. Glad to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Very excited to have a special guest in studio with us. And of course, last week the city said it would forego the usual July 1st fireworks display and instead have an enhanced, what they're calling an enhanced pyrotechnic show on the main stage at Fort Calgary during the evening's final act. There seems to be a lack of understanding as to why, and it's also created some anger. Have you been online lately? (laughs) So to explain from an indigenous perspective, we're joined by Paul Custer, Calgary writer, comedian, former broadcaster, and indigenous advocate himself, Friend of Mornings with Sue and Andy, mm-hmm. Paul Custer. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me in the studio. It's great actually seeing you guys yeah. again in person. <laughs> I, I don't know how long it's You're been. One of our first guests since we took down, we literally had a plastic shield here until right. like five days ago. Mm-hmm. So that's good news oh for us. Oh, my goodness, yeah. So, so because people, we, we talked about this off mic, Sue and I. If people have concrete reasons, it takes away questions and maybe you know puts the, the brakes on some anger. But we're also hearing that there's a reason behind not having the fireworks as to do uh, with an Indigenous perspective. So can you tell us the why behind Indigenous folks not wanting fireworks at a Canada Day celebration? Well, I think this started with um, an artist from the Pakani Nation in southern Alberta down by Lethbridge. And uh, she had brought this up. She had actually approached the city back in 2021 
with the discovery of the Kamloops uh, uh, unmarked graves, the 215 unmarked graves. At the residential school. At the residential, former residential school. And uh, the city, uh, for whatever reason, didn't follow up on that. And so that kind of angered her and certain members of the Indigenous community around Calgary. And they they just felt that it was somewhat disrespectful uh, when you're firing off fireworks when this had just come to light. And that really rocked not just the nation, but uh, it made international headlines uh, on on the uh, just the, the scale of things which within the Indian community, Indigenous community, that we knew had happened, but nobody had listened to us. We knew that there were uh, kids that had died in care, whether to neglect sickness. Some some kids were beaten to death. That That's a reality. And that was always within our community. So when this actually finally came to light on that day, May 23rd, 2021, um, this one person took it upon themselves. This is, uh, instead of celebrating, we need to step back, step back and have a pause. And that was solely where it came from. And now here we are two years later. I don't know why it's happening now. All of a sudden now, mm. this for me, this kind of came out of left field. I, I think for a lot of people, and, and I guess oh, that, it has that's, for a lot. Yeah. that's the problem, right? As, as Andy said, coming into this, you know, like the city this, and the city yesterday said, you know, this was somebody not on council that made this decision with no detail around it. And I think that's where people get upset. And, and you know, we've had many texts. Well, why, why can we not celebrate Canada's birthday? How do these two things relate? So can you kind of bring that together for us of, of why this might even be an issue? Mm, like well, in terms of, of stopping it now, two years later, as you said, but what does that have to do with celebrating Canada's birthday? I know it's it, when you put it that way, it, it becomes more in my mind, a little more convoluted, right? The, the, uh, what I'm supporting, I, I mean, and guys, I love fireworks. <laughs> I really love fireworks. So every stampede, every Canada day, I love going out to the fireworks. I understand where this is coming from, from the sense of, uh, people are waking up to what has, uh, happened to the indigenous communities since first contact. And we're talking about colonialism, etc. And we're working toward reconciliation. We're working toward under having a better understanding. So for me, if you pause it for this year, maybe that's a good thing because it also coincides. Uh, uh, this year marks the uh, uh, July 1st is the Chinese Immigration mm-hmm. Act. So there, I mean, and there are lots of issues around there's the all these right? uh, mm-hmm. dealing with minority groups. And so therefore, and again, but the timing again, why two years later after the, after the Kamloops thing, why now, where does it come from? But I do support if they, if they're saying, well, we're doing this so we can reflect on Canada's history, our relationship with indigenous, uh, with the indigenous people and other minority groups, Maybe that's a good thing. And then um, I don't know if this is supposed to be from now on. We will never have fireworks. I'm I I'm not sure how I feel about that. Uh, but for if for this year you can bring these issues to people's uh, to their consciousness and they can process it on their own, I think that's a great thing. We're making we're making little baby steps in terms of progress. But I know just reading from the comments. Uh, on certain websites and, and social media, my goodness, people are very irate about this. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, it's bringing up a lot of vitriol. And I'm just, that's, that's it's concern- disappointing. It's disappointing and it's concerning to me. Mm-hmm. However, 
we are in uh, open democratic society. So those people that uh, don't agree and maybe they go uh, go off, you know what? You've got that right to do that. Mm -hmm. But just just keep in mind, there's another perspective, and, and there's there's a reason for why there's this call, and it's not just to um, uh, just to stamp on. Uh, on something that every, everyone loves and uh, just for the sake of doing that. No, there's a deeper reason to that and we have to acknowledge what has happened in this country and I think sometimes people have a problem accepting that. Mm. And um, But for, as, as for where does this go from here? Um, and, and Sue, you had said this had come from uh, somebody outside of city council. Mm -hmm. Apparently so. That's what, the, but, that's but, what but, they but said we, yesterday. We don't, but we don't know... Who, where, what? No, that's the problem, right? That's that, where we that lack, is a when major we lack problem, the understanding, we lack ex yeah. acceptance for it. If we don't have the uh, information, how can we make uh, a good decision? Mm -hmm. yeah. Here, here. That's and true. Some, some great points, Paul, and I really appreciate you clarifying it for us because, like you say, knowledge is king, knowledge is yeah. power, and there's not a lot of exact reasoning and whether or not this is a temporary thing. So We don't still, know. Still many questions. We don't know, exactly. We're, we're glad that you could share your perspective. With well, thank story. you so much for having me, guys. I really enjoy uh, my time with you guys. Good stuff. That is Paul Custer, live in studio with us. A Calgary writer, comedian, former broadcaster, and Indigenous advocate.